Hello, and welcome to another special episode of ESG Matters at Ashurst. I'm Anna Marie Slot, Global Sustainability and the ESG Partner at Ashurst. And today I am joined by Rebecca Becky Anison, Director of Engagement at the Chancery Lane Project. Now, if you are uh, working in a company that's signed up for the Race to Net Zero, or you are a lawyer anywhere in the structure trying to figure out uh, what net zero and circular economy look like on a day-to-day level, this is the podcast for you. Becky and uh, the rest of the team at Chancery Lane, working in collaboration with uh, private practice uh, practitioners, as well as in-house lawyers, have been working to tackle the climate crisis one contract clause at a time. I'm also pleased to be joined by Elnez Amiri, a solicitor in our own corporate transactions team here at Ashurst, who before joining us worked with TCLP, helping to set up their first virtual hackathon. Thank you both for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Perhaps we could start with just a few minutes of description on your background and how you've come to be here today. That sounds amazing. And thank you. Um, So I am a former uh, practicing solicitor. I trained in a city law firm before moving in-house. And I spent 12 glorious years as an outsourcing commercial contract solicitor, which I enjoyed very much. Um, And then I had a brief um, uh, couple of years at Practical Law, um, which was also a wonderful experience as a senior editor in their in-house team. So I very much come from the in-house side of things. Um, and then while I was there, I was volunteering already with the Chancery Lane project and the opportunity came up to move and as they were expanding and I jumped upon it because it's a project which has been so dear to my heart and being able to put all my time and energy into it um, was a, an opportunity I could not pass up. Super. Sounds like a like an exciting uh, background that gets you to a place where you are uh, you are deep in the weeds on um, figuring out the actual clauses that work. Um, Chancery Lane, again, I've said this before, it's an amazing collaborative effort of uh, lawyers kind of from 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 everywhere, from in-house, from from private practice law firms. Um, Elnez, who uh, who has started her career in, in private practice, w- was with you. Elnez, maybe you can give us a little background about your time at uh, TCLP. Yeah, um, so I, I started working with TCLP as a trainee, um, sort of in my in my second seat, where I was getting a bit more familiar with the corporate world. Um, and I think, sort of as a junior lawyer, it's it's such a great initiative to get involved in because not not only are you doing something great for the environment, you're sort of getting involved at that. Sort of base level of creating clauses and and learning sort of how all of this this works together and fits in together in the in the grander scheme of things um while sort of you know working towards a, a personal passion project of mine which you know is, is tackling climate change so um that that's how i started with with the transfer lane project and and now as i've qualified and i'm moving through through my career i'm hoping to continue sort of working with them and actually implementing some of these clauses going forwards Super. And, and um, you've done the TCLP together, you, uh, Becky, but, 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 but the ho- kind of whole collective have produced an enormous amount of material to help people transform their contracts uh, and reflect uh, climate considerations uh, in those contracts and how, they, how, how parties contract around what they're doing. Uh, but you have a new exciting project that I think uh, everyone would be really interested in called your Net Zero Toolkit. Maybe you could walk us through how that works, you know, who, who needs to use it or who can use it, um, what it's good for. 
No, fantastic. And, and you're absolutely right. We have, um, we've recently in the last few days just published our 100th clause. And I think that's what we're best known for is producing clauses that you can put into contracts. With the net zero toolkit, we wanted to go one step further and say, you know what, net zero is a really complicated concept. And part of the reason it's complicated is because there isn't a single definition for it. Um, but it is becoming increasingly important that lawyers across the spectrum, not just employment, uh, sorry, environmental lawyers, but everybody from employment through finance, through corporate deals and transactions, you know, every bit of the law and the law that we practice as solicitors is touched by climate crisis. Um, so everybody really needs to have an understanding of it. And net zero, whilst it is a concept which has its flaws and it has its distractors, net zero is a concept which has really taken off. It is a global universal language that we're using to talk about climate change. So as lawyers, it's something that we really need to get to grips with and understand and understand it as deeply as we would if there was a new finance act or a new companies act coming out. Um, and why we wanted to start with our net zero toolkit, obviously launching that in the same year as COP26, um, because the race to zero is a big part of COP26. So kind of marrying up with that is this idea that plenty of your clients are going to be signing up to race for zero. Um, speaking to the lawyers out there. Um, one third of FTSE 100 companies have already signed up. That number is going to grow. Um, so if we want to fully mobilize and give effect to the wishes of those clients that have made those net zero targets, then we need to understand what it is as lawyers. So the first part of our toolkit is educating lawyers. So we start with a really short, it's only 10 minutes, a short 10 minute video, which is a primer that tells you as a solicitor, as a lawyer, what is net zero? What does it mean? Where do you, what do you need to know about it to be a legal practitioner? And what's so wonderful about this starting point is that because it's a 10 minute video, I always say to people, play it at a team meeting, play it at a supplier kickoff meeting, play it at a deal kickoff meeting so that everybody in the room has a baseline level of knowledge and understanding before you even start talking contract clauses. Because actually what a lot of this is, is positioning and educating and helping people to go on a journey so that by the time they see a climate contract clause, it's not a surprise, it's not scary, it's not unusual, and everybody understands why it's there. So then we have something called the net zero explainer, which takes the building blocks of what we did in that 10 minute video and it expands it. It gives people the resources they need to go and direct their own learning because every industry, every practice area is going to have a particular need to understand net zero in a particular way. You know, we're lawyers, we understand very much the idea that everything has to be bespoke to a practice area, an industry, a client, the net zero explainer, gives you that overview, but also shows you where you can direct your learning. And then we went through a process internally um, of taking a number of our existing contract clauses and saying, OK, if this contract clause was going to be fully aligned with the Paris Agreement, if this contract clause was going to be fully aligned with science based initiatives to get us to that 1.5 world, what would it look like? How would it look different to how the, the way in which it was originally drafted? So in order to go through that process of taking a subset of our clauses and saying, what would we need to do to make these fully Paris aligned? We created what we called the net zero dashboard um, and we broke 
net zero, race to zero, um, the criteria down into seven key areas. And we made a dashboard for ourselves initially saying there are seven key areas that you have to hit to make yourself net zero aligned. These are the seven key areas. I can rattle through them very quickly. Um, they are scope. So that is the scope one, two or three um, emissions. It's warming. Are you on a trajectory for a 1.5 degree world in 2050 or on a four degree world, given the emissions that your organization is putting out there? What are your targets and timing around that? Are you hitting 1.5 degrees, but in 2070? Are you hitting four degrees in 2030? Are you offsetting? And if you are offsetting, have you really scrutinized that? Are you applying the Oxford principles for offsetting? Are you looking at mitigation? Have you got a quality control system on your offsetting? Um, then we looked at uh, governance, very familiar to a lot of us on this call, I'm sure. Um, do you have people on the board who are responsible for climate crisis? Do they have enough educational resources or knowledge to help them make good decisions? Do you have a good decision-making process? Um, do you have internal targets? How are those being tracked and measured? All that good stuff. And then the last two, which I think are particularly thorny, the last two metrics on that seven stages, but I think are also particularly important, is just transition. In your race to decarbonize, are you making decisions which are having a disproportionately negative effect on vulnerable populations and peoples? And I think the last one, which I think that we haven't really explored much in the legal profession, but which is really critical, is lobbying. Are you paying millions of dollars as an organization to, into a trade association which is aggressively lobbying against the Paris Agreement? And you know, where do you sit with that? There's obviously reputational damage there. We took those seven areas and we created this dashboard and then we started applying that to the cons, I think it's around 20 to 30 of our contract clauses to create these best in class. And so that then we thought, well, hang on a minute, we've done this work. This would be so valuable to people who are working for clients who've signed up to Race for Zero to this dashboard, which shows you where you are, but then shows you what you need to do to move across to make sure you're Paris aligned and beyond. So that dashboard is a really central part of the toolkit. Uh, and you can use that to review where your client is sitting or where your organization is sitting and what you need to do to improve to get to Paris, the Paris Agreement. Um, and then we have those best in class contract clauses that I mentioned, which are the, I, I think these are really interesting actually, um, because if you were operating your business in a way which was Paris aligned, this is the contract clauses that, that you would be using. These are the contract clauses, this is what it would look like. And that's really interesting to me because when people look at that and say, oh, that doesn't look very practical. I don't think I get that over the, over the line in the negotiation. It's not very pragmatic. And I say, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Because this is what Paris alignment looks like. And if that's not practical, if that's not pragmatic, how far away are we as a business, as an organization, as a client from truly being Paris aligned? And if we're not Paris aligned, does everybody sitting around this negotiating table realize what that means? And, and I don't mean in terms of necessarily that a four degree rise might mean that the island of Tuvalu no longer exists. Although obviously in terms of just transition, that's a really important thing that we need to be considering. But taking it all the way down just at the level of a business, in a four degree world, 
what does your business look like what do your supply chains look like what do your employment needs look like yeah yeah no really uh, hopefully we don't have a conversation about a four degree world hopefully, <laughs> hopefully everybody stays on a 1.5 it's going to change enough just to just just at that level um i guess one of the things um we're going to come to in a little bit is is maybe some some key takeaways that you've got from some case studies um but before we get there elnas i i think you know, people look at this and say, oh, okay, so so some NGO group got together and came up with, with these clauses. Could you kind of walk us through the inside of how these clauses come, come to fruition, just, just to really highlight how much work goes into what, what the outcome is? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think one of the, the main things to take away from this is it's some of the best lawyers um, I have ever seen in their particular specialisms have come together to draft these clauses, to, to peer review them and to sign them off as, you know, either this is, as, as Becky was saying, best in clause and this is our ambitious clause, or this is practical and it will actually, you know, if, if, not, if not the standard now, will certainly be the expectation from governments, from regulators, from the industry in the next five to 10 years. So I, I think, you know, you've got, you've got your best, best in clause that, that obviously TCLP have, have made um, Paris aligned, but there's also um, a whole range within that that can be implemented at any stage of a of a of an organization's um so path to to net zero um in terms of how it's how it's actually developed um it's it's a great sort of collaborative process um and you know the the drafting that i've been involved in certainly has involved um some great sort of partners senior lawyers and in-house lawyers who've come together and looked at this from a okay this is a problem um we know this is a this is a practical climate problem how do we tackle this from a legal perspective and you know how, how do we think you know our clients or for the in-house lawyers how do we think us as an organization can actually take this on and and deal with it in a practical or in an ambitious way depending on on the clause that we're looking at and it's been a case of sitting down and spending you know a couple of weeks or a couple of you know a few hours within that week um going through it going away doing the research that's necessary um in some instances we've spoken to clients and asked them what they think sort of works um i know we've we've you know previously i've spoken to insurance clients for example and gone you know we're going for something really ambitious here but do you see this being implemented and you'd be surprised by what you hear back to be honest um and you know we've, we've had instances where people have gone away and spoken to regulators they've had contacts at and gone, you know, is, is this something that's similar to what you're thinking of doing? Um, or is this, you know, too, too out of the realms of possibility at the moment? Um, and it's, you know, over, over several hours, you know, over the week, over the two week period, um, these conversations have happened, we've come back together, we've collaborated on Zoom, um, on Teams, on whatever, because, you know, this has been happening during COVID as well, this has all been virtual um, on phone calls and emails um, drafting between various individuals um, until it's gotten to you know a, a good enough stage that we're able to then pass it on to the peer reviewers and what I understand happens then is the peer reviewers will be sort of some of again the best lawyers in their fields looking at their areas of specialism and going okay how does this clause actually fit in with the rest of the legislation with the um you know the regulation in place with the um normal practices of this industry um let's you know tidy it up let's make sure that we've, we've got something that actually can be 
used and adapted into a contract in a very practical way. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's 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 a very collaborative effort, but it's it's also inputted at every single stage. Um, at least on, on you know the the clauses I've worked on with with you know regulator input, client input, in-house input, um, and then you know very very good lawyers looking at it and saying, does this work? Yeah, so so I mean, real like on the ground expertise going through each of these, so that you have a usable end product that that is commercially viable. I think it's the outcome of all of that effort. Um, Becky, are you seeing are you seeing people use it? Maybe you could give us a few examples to kind of round out our our conversation. Yeah, we are absolutely seeing people use it, um, and. It's been particularly interesting to me to see which areas or which industries have taken it up first and quickly. Um, for me, supply chains has been an obvious area um, and most of our clauses that are in use are from the supply chain kind of bucket or practice area or topic or if you like. And I think it's because it's just such an easy win. You know, supply chains are already so primed to um, having to deal with changes in service specifications or changes in product specifications or, you know, bending to the needs of clients. So when you start to add in some climate specifications on top of those, yes, there may be some negotiation around price or solution, but um, it's not perhaps quite as unfamiliar as other areas that you could bring climate clauses into, I think. So that's been a really, really good starting point has been supply chains. Um, and we have two fantastic case studies about supply chains on our website. Firstly, from Salesforce, who I think in April this year, I think it was April, announced that they were putting uh, launching their sustainability exhibit. Um, so as their supply chain contracts came up for renewal, the renewals, were required to have the sustainability exhibit signed up to. Um, that was influenced by a number of our supply chain clauses. Um, and I say influenced because I'm I'm an ex-lawyer, or I suppose I'm a current lawyer, but I'm a non-practicing one, you know, and very rarely would I take a precedent without tweaking it. Very rarely would I um, take a precedent and just pop it straight in an agreement. I'd always be amending and tweaking to make sure it's perfect um, for my industry and my client. And that's exactly what we're expecting lawyers to do with our clauses. They're a starting point in the same way that practical law or Lexis Nexis precedent is a starting point. Um, and so they've taken a number of our clauses. They've been in effect since April. It's been hugely well received and well supported by um, uh, Salesforce, they've been very supportive of their supply chain in adopting it. Um, and I've I've heard from Salesforce that they've had some of their suppliers ask to renew early so they can be put on the sustainability exhibit terms so they can go and say, look, we are on the sustainability exhibit and using that as a kind of a really important selling point almost um, to other clients to prove their green credentials. Because it's very hard to do greenwashing, I think, at the point at which you are on the hook for damages for breach if you fail to meet these climate targets. You know, the other case study is the Environment Agency, and they've been using um, a, a amended version of a number of our clauses, but particularly, I think, interesting circular economy clauses. They've been in use since September 2020, so well over a year now in their supply chain. Um, and uh, they took on our circular economy clauses as a way of sort of saying, you know, where there is the possibility of using something which has been refurbished or recycled in, for example, flood defense work, um, 
then then let's use it. Uh, and I think the circular economy one is a particularly interesting situation because some of our clauses um, are dark green, high ambition, Paris aligned. Um, if you don't meet, meet this carbon footprint target for a product, then maybe there'll be a penalty, really hard stuff. Um, but then when you take a circular economy clause, actually it's very easy to say, if you have got materials that you could refurbish that would get you up to this health and safety specification or this product specification that just been used previously or were bought for a previous job and never used and the packaging is still in place, um, then let's use them. You can actually save money um, on that. So it seems to me that the circular economy ones, which have also been very well received, are such an easy win in that industry. Um, so that's been really heartening to see that taken up. No, great points, great points. And, and I think the circular economy conversation is a new one for people, right? People are getting their heads around net zero. Circular economy is, is equally as, uh, as big an opportunity for, for companies uh, and, and as big a challenge to get, to get the drafting right on. Um, that has been excellent, uh, an excellent overview. If I could ask you, you know, to, to three takeaways that that you know someone listening in um, would would want to take away from this, what what would your three be, Becky? I think the first one goes back to that education point. Not everybody is at the same stage of understanding about what net zero is why it might be important to a client or important to deliver. So I think that one of the ways that we've seen the most successful implementation of our clauses is when the companies trying to implement them took the time to make sure all their stakeholders properly understood what was going on and whether that's showing them our 10 minute video or doing something more bespoke. Um, as lawyers, it's very simple when you are very busy under a deadline to say that clause looks unfamiliar, that looks a bit weird, let's just strike that out. But having everybody educated means that we're not saying that clause looks a bit weird and unfamiliar. We're saying, oh, I recognize that. That's a net zero clause. I understand what that's trying to do. Let's negotiate it and discuss it. So I think getting that education piece is really key first off. Secondly, and this is sort of a similar takeaway, but which is this stuff is coming whether we like it or not. You know, the world is moving on, the climate is moving on, there is risk out there um, which is not being properly dealt with and not being properly dealt with by lawyers. Um, for example, it horrified me the other day when I realised that it is not a standard check in, an, in a property transaction to look at a map of where sea level rises are going to be in 20 years and check that your property is not going to be underwater. That's not a standard check, but a mortgage can be 25 years long. You know, if we don't hit 1.5 degrees, if we end up at two degrees, is your house going to be underwater in 20 years? Surely your mortgage company would like to know that. Um, so actually, I think as lawyers, we haven't really grappled with the risk, the physical risks of this yet. Um, and lastly, use the clauses. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We've looked at some of these risk points and our amazing volunteers have drafted solutions for them. And as Elnaz has said, they've been peer reviewed by some of the best legal minds in the industry. Um, don't reinvent the wheel. There is work out there that has already been done that you can go to your clients and say, hey, I've got a solution for you. I've, I can help you hit to your net zero goals, massive FTSE 100 client, um, and I can do it through contracting. 
Alanis, anything you'd want to add on to those three? Yeah, I, I, the only thing I think I would add on is just, you know, don't, don't be afraid of having a look around the TCLP website. Um, you know, I've, I've had instances where clients have gone, oh, can you look at this, you know, four page contract, not that long, and tell us how we can make it more net zero aligned. And I think as lawyers, we're so used to dealing with sort of precedent. So what have we done for this client before? What, what is standard of the industry? We don't necessarily grapple with completely changing or completely analyzing um, a contract in an area where, you know, that there are very few of us who are just climate change lawyers. And, you know, things like the net zero dra drafting checklist, for example, on the TCLP website is fantastic. It will tell you exactly what you need to be looking out for. Um, and, it, and it gives you, you know, the levels of it, you know, how ambitious are you being? And these are the things that fit in with that ambition or things like um, the net zero drafting definitions and sampling wording or the glossary that they have. It's, it's all starting points and it gives you something to work from and it gives you some guidance, which, um, isn't necessarily as widely available at the moment. So, you know, don't be afraid, have a look around the website. There's some really, really useful stuff on there. Thanks, Elnaz. And thank you very much, Becky, for joining us today. Um, I think a, a fantastic tool uh, and available uh, for free uh, to everyone who accesses your website. So go to TCLP, the Chancery Lane Project, um, and you will find a wealth of uh, well thought out and, and uh, highly, highly negotiated contract clauses that you can start from to reflect net zero and the circular economy in your own transition. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This 30 for Net Zero 30 episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series, ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>